the Veil with Daniel Jackson presents guest host Bob Better. Bob, the cultural anthropologist whose life work concerns the intersection of spirituality and healing in diverse indigenous cultures. His original fieldwork focused on Native North American medicine, especially that of the Southern Plains. Along with his adopted uncle, medicine man Richard Tartsa Sr., he authored the book Big Bo, The Spiritual Life and Teachings of a Kiowa Family. And now, part one of Spirituality and Healing with Bob Better. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Veil with Daniel Jackson. Me, I'm your host, Daniel Jackson. And today we have on our show, Robert Vetter. Robert, how are you doing today? Very well, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, I'm glad to have you on here. So uh, it says here, Robert Vetter, M.A. What does M.A. stand for? <laughs> An M.A. degree is a Master of Arts. Oh, is it? Uh-huh. I have a, uh, I don't have a master, uh, but I do have a, a BA at being a DA, but that's different. <laughs> uh, I got a bachelor's in being a dumbass. So, uh, so let me, let me have you tell my audience what it is you do, because I'm, I'm sure you would be able to explain it better than I can. Sure. Uh, well, I, my academic training is as a cultural anthropologist, um, oh. But the work that I do is very specific to um, my area of interest, which is the intersection of spirituality and healing. So I, I teach people, I do one-on-one -on -one spiritual or soul coaching with people. Um, I teach classes, I run ceremonies, including the Temascal, which is a the Mesoamerican version of the sweat lodge. So I wear a number of different hats, but it all has to do with that intersection of spirituality and healing. And what got you into that? What, what sparked your interest in doing this? Well, I was interested in spirituality from the time really that I was a child. And I, I grew up in, you know, I guess a conventional home in that sense. Um, and the the answers that I got to the deeper questions about life, I felt were not adequately answered in the religious upbringing that I had. You know, I went to a um, I went to a church um, as a child, and I just felt like Christianity didn't answer the deeper questions that I had. So when my friends were interested in all the things that kids are interested in. You know, I was maybe 11 or 12 years old, and I was reading books on Hinduism and Buddhism and meditation wow. and Taoism and all kinds of things that were unusual for a kid to be reading, especially at that time, you know, because, sure. you know, I, we're talking about the early 1970s. So these are things that are very mainstream now, but at the time, the, those that was an odd thing. So I, you know, I had an interest in, I guess, what I would describe as alternative spirituality. And I felt that there was something inherently wrong in my own society, which made me uh, interested in other cultures. And that's why when I eventually went to college uh, as an undergrad, I majored in anthropology because it gave me a chance to look at what other cultures do. How do they look at the world? How do they understand our place in the world? And I actually had a dual major in philosophy and anthropology. 
So in a way, we could say that philosophy looks at the ideal and anthropology looks at the real. In other words, what people actually do in their behavior. Right. So within that field, you know, anthropology is a very broad discipline. It, it basically means anything to do with human beings. Anthropology is the study of human beings. My area of interest within it was just this very, very thin sliver of it that had to do with healing and spirituality, where those two intersect. And nowadays, it's not at all unusual to talk about healing and spirituality. And as you probably know, my podcast is called Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures. Um, but at the time that I was in college and then eventually graduate school, that was a kind of an odd thing to look at, at those two together. Wasn't um, talked about so much. It, it, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't exactly. It wasn't so accepting. Exactly. Um, so in graduate school, I, I went to the University of Oklahoma, where I went originally to study philosophy. Now, here's the part where the story kind of takes a, a strange twist. As an undergrad, um, my area of interest was spirituality and healing, as I said, but the, the place on the planet that I wanted to study it was Asia, and that's why I went to India, for example. Um, as a part of my college program. I planned on going to um, University of Hawaii for a program at what's called the East-West Center, and I was rejected from that program, and I was absolutely devastated. I, I, I thought, you know, this was what I was destined for. I can't believe I was rejected from it, and I, you know, threw my hands up in the air. It was very uh, upsetting to me at the time. So why do you was think ready. you were rejected? I'm sorry? Why do you think you were rejected or why did they reject you? Well, it, part of the – they only take a very small number of people for this particular oh. program. And it, it's, um, it's highly competitive. They pay for everything. You know, it includes wow. all these grants that go along wow. with it. So it, it's, you know, pretty competitive to get into it. So I was ready to take a year off and then – decide what to do at some point later on. And then in the 11th hour, I got a call from my philosophy professor who told me that he had gotten a call from another philosophy professor at the University of Oklahoma who was looking for a promising young graduate student to come in and do some work there with a full assistantship. So all of a sudden, you know, I changed my whole plan I drove out to Oklahoma, began my program there, and I hated all of the courses that I was taking. <laughs> and I was prepared to just ditch it, pack up my stuff, and move back to New York, where I was from. And as I was clearing my stuff out of the, out of the department, I took the elevator down, and for some reason, I just decided to cold walk right into the anthropology department to find out what was going on there. And I walked in and I met with the department chairman who just, you know, stopped what he was doing to talk to me. And basically he offered me the same assistantship in the anthropology department that I had had in the philosophy department. And I didn't know why until I found out later why, which I'll tell you in a moment. 
So he he said that I could I could have that full assistantship if I agreed to teach the introduction to anthropology. So I agreed to do that. Um, and then I found out later that the person who was teaching that class the day before I walked in there had basically walked out on them and they needed somebody <laughs> desperately somebody right away. <laughs> that day. So, I mean, I, I, that's why this, this seemed to be my destiny rather than. Yeah. Everything like, happens for a reason. Correct. Exactly. That exactly. Right. So, um, there was a catch 22 in the situation, which was that it was too late in the semester for me to enroll in any classes in the anthropology department, but I needed a full-time course load in order to maintain the assistantship. So the solution to the problem was that they let me do a full semester load of independent study. And we decided that since I was interested in cultural anthropology, that the my independent study would be doing a type of field work that's called ethnography. So within cultural anthropology, there's two directions that people generally go in. One is ethnology, where you take a subject and then you just look at how other cultures all over the planet uh, deal with whatever that aspect of culture is. So it could be religion, it could be politics, it could be social organization, whatever it is. And then the other branch is called ethnography, where you go into the field and you live in and among a group of people and you are what is called a participant observer, where you participate in the culture, but you also try to remain a little bit detached from it in order to understand it. So I decided that that was what I was going to do. My area of interest was spirituality and healing. And since I found myself in Oklahoma, which was is the home of more different tribes of Native Americans than any other state in our country, um, I decided that I would just do it with some tribe. I didn't know what tribe. I didn't know anything about Native Americans, in fact, because my area of interest was Asia, as I said before. So I, so all of this sounded great. Now I had to figure out how I was going to start my study. So I had an advisor who was an older man. He was probably in his, I guess, late 70s at the time. And he had been, he had done, conducted field work over the course of most of his life among one of the tribes in Oklahoma. And I figured, you know, my area of interest was spirituality and healing. I wanted to meet a medicine man. And sure. I figured he would tell me who I could interview. You know, he would send me to a person. But that was not at all what he did. What he did was he sat me down and he told me, you're going to have to use a networking approach. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, what you'll do is you'll go out into the field. You'll just start meeting people and let one person introduce you to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else, until you eventually meet who it is that you want to meet and get started with your field work. So I was very discouraged from that. I, I because you know I didn't I didn't know anybody there and I didn't know anything about Native Americans I didn't know anything about how to start or how to do anything. He wanted you to get the he wanted you to get to know them. So well he yeah he wanted he wanted to get he wanted me to to get to know them in a in a oh a trial by fire way I guess I would sure, say sure because they want to because they don't want to. 
I would have to imagine they don't want just anyone coming into their tribe per se and just asking a bunch of questions. They want to see if you are really in it to be in it. So you'll to, to know that you will uh, they can trust you enough to talk about these things with you. Well, that's exactly what I would come to find out. <laughs> that's that's the uh, what you just said is the teaser for what's about to come up. <laughs> yeah. So I now I had rented an apartment uh, with you know in the in the housing department they just listed people who were looking to share an apartment and I had I had shared an apartment with this guy Jim. And I didn't know him, you know, I just had gotten there, moved into the apartment and I came back from this meeting with my advisor and I, you know, I just told him what had happened. And I was like, oh man, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to get started. And Jim said, oh, well, maybe I can help you. And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to help me. And he told me, yeah, I'm, I'm a quarter Comanche, which I didn't realize up until then. And he said, maybe I could introduce you to some of my Comanche relatives. And I said, well, sure, that would be great. So, you know, a week or two later, uh, there was some sort of a gathering that his family was having, his extended family, in a town called Lawton, Oklahoma, in the southwest part of the state. And he and I drove down there. And, you know, Jim, honestly, he didn't seem to know really a lot about his Comanche relatives. but he figured he would do for me what he could. So we got there and the women were all off by the picnic tables. They were organizing the meal and the men were all sitting in a circle of folding chairs under a shade tree. And they were almost all elders, you know, older men. And Jim and I walked up and he introduced me and I, I, I said, hi, I said, you know, I, I'm here because I'm trying to meet a medicine man. And I, you know, I was just being honest and saying what was on my mind. And all of a sudden, it got silent. It was like you could hear crickets. And everybody was just staring at me and didn't say a word. So that that awkward silence went on for a while until finally, gratefully, uh, one of the women came out and said, oh, the meal is ready. You guys can sit down. So we sat down and I, I realized that I had made my first big blunder in even <laughs> raising this topic with yeah, people again, that I didn't know. They, they wanted to they wanted to feel you out first before they, they started in with that stuff, I'm sure. They sure did. So the next thing that happened, you know, we kind of we sat by ourselves eating the meal, and after the meal was over, there was a very kind old man who came up to me kind of quietly when nobody was looking and he he sort of whispered to me, he said, I heard what you said about wanting to meet a medicine man. He said, from what I know, we still have one medicine man left in our tribe. I don't know his name. I don't know where he lives. I really don't know anything about him, but I know another old man who I think might be able to help you. He said his name is Woody Watchataker. And he drew me, he drew me a map on a napkin to tell me how to get to this guy's house. <laughs> he said, he doesn't have a phone, so you know, you're just gonna have to go there. So I so I told Jib and Jim said, oh, well, if you want, I'll go with you. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. You know, at least I'm gonna have a Comanche guy with me. Yeah, guide, at least. And this is gonna help. So Jim and I got in the car the next week and we 
drove down. It was without traffic. It would, I mean, without getting lost, it would have been an hour and a half ride. But we got totally lost, and you know, took us hours to finally find this house. No, no Google Maps then. No Google Maps then. We're talking 1980. So, so we get there. We finally get to the house, and we get out of the car. And I remember as we were walking up to the door, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, Jim's Comanche. He's going to know what to say. Sure. So we get up to the door, knock on the door, and this old, old man comes to the door with long gray hair and braids. And he looks at me and Jim. And now I'm waiting for Jim to say something. And apparently Jim was waiting for me to say something. And so the three of us were just kind of looking at each other. And finally, I thought, well, you know, I've got to just say something. So I said, uh, I said, hi. I said, you know, my name is Bob Vetter, and I'm an anthropology student. And I was hoping that you would talk to us today a little bit about the Comanches. And again, absolute silence, <laughs> like crickets, you know. And Craig finally, too, Bob. Oh. Too. and he says, this is how you come to my house. Now, I didn't know what he was getting at, so I said, yeah. And he said, this is how you come to my house to see me? And I said, yeah. And he opened his door and he said, come in here for a minute. So he was inviting us in, but this was not really a friendly invitation in any way. He pointed to the couch and he said, sit down over there. And Jim and I sat down and we kind of looked at each other and, and he said, wait here a minute. And he came back a minute later and he had this painting in his hand. He was a famous painter. And he held up this painting and it was a beautiful painting of a Comanche war dancer. And I said, wow, that's really beautiful. But his point wasn't whether he would impress me or not with that. He said, I'm an artist. He said, and I have better things to do than to sit around talking to you. <laughs> said, and another thing, that's no way to visit an Indian. And I didn't know what he was getting at. So I said, I, I said, what? he said, the least you can do if you if you visit an Indian is bring them something to eat. Yeah, or a gift of some of some sort. Sure. Now I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I just said I'm really sorry. Jim and I got up off the couch, walked out the door, got back to the car, and drove all the way back. You know, a couple hours to get back home. Mostly silent in the car because of what had happened. And as we were getting back into town, I remember I started to say something about going back. And Jim said, you're going back to that guy's house? And I said, yeah. And he said, I wouldn't go back to that guy's house if you paid me. And he was really, really angry about the way that we had been treated. So the next week came. And uh, this time I drove by myself. Now, let me preface this by saying that I was a really, really poor graduate student. I mean, I, I had I had enough money to buy myself groceries, put some gas in the car, and all I could afford was a few pathetic groceries in a brown paper bag. So I had them in the car. I drove all the way down there, got out of the car, walked up to the front door, knocked on the door. The same old man came to the door and he looked at me and he looked at this paper bag in my hand that I handed off to him. And he got a big smile on his face. And he said, now that's the way you visit an Indian. And he shook my hand and he invited me into his home 
in a completely different way than the last time. And I sat down with him and his wife, Eva, and it turned out that Eva was the niece of uh, a very, very com famous Comanche medicine woman who had been the subject of a book called Sanapia, Comanche Medicine Woman. And we talked about medicine. We talked about Comanche history. We talked about their religion and spirituality. And I continued to visit them in the weeks that would follow. And at one point I asked him, I said, do you know this medicine man that I heard about? He said, oh yeah, I know him. And I said, well, do you think you could introduce me to him? And he said, yeah, well, today's not a very good day, but maybe I could do that another day. Now I continued to come and I continued to, to interview Woody and Eva and talk to them about all kinds of things and got really, really close with them over the time that would follow. And it was getting later and later in the semester. And I had a project coming due. And finally, in frustration, when I was there one day, I said, you know, I know, you know, you said that it's not a good day for you to go. And I, I, I'm sure you've got a lot of other things to do. But maybe if you could tell me where his house is, maybe I could go on my own. And he said, all right. And again, you know, he took a piece of paper and he started drawing me this map. And then he started to explain how, you know, you go, uh, you go th past five ranches and turn right and go down the dirt road, go over the wooden bridge. I mean, it was these kind of instructions with no, no road markers, no names of any streets or, or roads or anything that were totally off the beaten path. So he said, you got that? And I said, yeah, but I mean, I, I really didn't have any idea where I was yeah, going. What are you going to do? You're just going to have to try to follow it the best you can, right? Exactly. Now, by now, the sun was going down and I was thinking, well, I'll go back. I'll go back tomorrow or another day. So I got in my car and I, I was just about to pull out and he came running out of the house and he said, hold on a minute. He said, you know what? He said, you're never going to find this on your own. He said, I'll, I'll lead you. I'll go in my car. You follow me. So I start following him and the sun is going down. And by the time we get through these back roads, it's pitch black now. And we get to finally a cul-de-sac at the end of this dirt road where the dirt just makes this, this loop. And he turned around so that he was facing going out. I was still facing going in. And he opened, his, he opened the, the driver's door and he pointed over the top of his car and he yelled out, that's it. And he drove away. So here I was out in the middle of nowhere. I didn't know which way it was to get out or go anywhere. I didn't have a gift. I didn't have food. I didn't have anything. And I drove down that dirt road and I finally got to the end and there was a little white house kind of off by itself. And I saw a light go on and then the outside light went on and then the door opened, so there was like a little shaft of light for a second, and then the door slammed shut. Now, I grew up here in New York, so the idea of being on a back road like this is a, a little daunting to begin with. And I remember thinking to myself, 
I don't know where I am. I don't even know if I'm at the right house. Somebody could shoot me here and nobody would even know it. <laughs> Never you know? find you. So I get out of the car and there's dogs barking at me, dogs nipping at me as I make my way to the front door of the house. And I, I finally get to the front door and I knock on the door and this old, old lady comes to the door. And I said, uh, I said, hi, I said, I'm looking for Oliver Pataponi. And she said, uh-huh. And I said, uh, does he live here? And she said, yeah. But she didn't invite me in. She just said, yeah. So finally I said, uh, well, do you think I could talk to him? And she said, well, I guess so. And she opened the door and let me go in. And I, I remember, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I had all these stereotypes in my mind of what I thought a medicine man would be like. And I thought I was going to show up and find somebody sitting in a teepee smoking a pipe, you know. And I walk into the, I walk in the door and here's this old man. He's sitting on a couch watching a football game on television. And I thought, wow, you know, my stereotype is totally off. But he turned the TV off and he sat and he talked to me for a while. And I, I told him, you know, that I, I wanted to talk to him about Comanches. And he said, all right. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll be willing to talk to you. He said, come back next week. <laughs> and then he told me how to get back. You know, he told me how to find my way back to the main road. And in a very warm way, he said to me, um, you know, be careful when you're going home. And so I met with my advisor. I told him what had happened. And he said, oh, he said, that's great. He said, um, well, now you can really start your project. And I said, great. I said, you know, I told him what had happened up until then. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, what kind of questions do you think I should ask when I go there? And he said, well, don't talk about anything having to do with healing and doctoring practices. And I said, well, that's, that's what I'm coming here to find out about. And he said, well, you're not going to be able to do that until you really establish rapport with him. Now, meanwhile, he didn't tell me any of this up until now, right? <laughs> he didn't tell me that before I met with the other people. So I said, well, how long do you think that's going to take? And he said, I don't know, maybe a year or so. Wow. So now I'm, you know, a little dejected about the project. And I said, well, what, you know, if you were me, then what would you start to talk about? And he said, well, I don't know, maybe traditional stories about their people. So I went back and I started doing readings about the Comanches. I started reading about some of their traditional stories. And I got back the next week and I, I we sat down. I had a yellow pad of legal paper in front of me with all these questions that I had written. And, you know, we sat down, we got ready, and I, I just took the first question off the list. And I said, I said, uh, do you have any of the old stories of the Comanches that you could tell me? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, well, he said, you know, you know, my wife's sister talks to somebody from the university about things like that. He said, but to tell you the truth, to me, that that's nothing but a bunch of fairy stories. He said, if, if you want to talk to me, though, he said, I've got some stories that I can tell you that have never been written in books before. 
stories that are true, and I know that they're true because these are things that I've been through all by myself and witnessed with my own eyes. And that was when he told me the story about how he came to be a medicine man. And I'll, I'll pause there for just a moment, Daniel, because I, I haven't given you a chance to say a word yet, but this is kind of where our story takes an interesting turn. So I'll just stop for a moment and see if any, you have any questions that I didn't get to yet before I go on. Oh, no, I'm, I'm listening because uh, I want to hear what he's got to say, too. I, because uh, you, you don't hear the stories anymore or, or no one's willing to talk about it anymore. Um, unfortunately, I think because of what uh, what took place uh, back then, uh, we basically uh, uh, raped and pillaged the Indians and took all their land and and gave them what some uh, some jewelry and and some alcohol and 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 just let it be that. So absolutely, we don't we just we don't remember it or don't want to remember it or uh, don't want to claim it, but. Uh, no, I'd, I'd like to hear what uh, what stories he said to you. So, yeah, I want to I want to acknowledge and agree with what you just said about um, the way that we have treated Native peoples yeah. in their own home, and that's that's really important. Um, disgraceful. It is disgraceful, and and that struggle goes on even to this day. So yeah. let me. Let me kind of bracket that because I, I'm not, I don't mean to minimize that in any way. That is very significant in our understanding who Native people are and how they're living within our country. So that's, that is an important topic. And I'm going to put it aside for a moment, just as I kind of, to use the, the term from your show, I'm about to pull back the veil in our story to kind of look at a different world. Sure. So here's what he told me. He said, I, he said, I'd never set out to be a doctor. He referred to himself as an Indian doctor. He said, but I got sick. He said, a num some years ago, I got cancer and I went into the hospital and the doctors kept me there long enough to perform all the treatments that they could and to do all of the tests that they could. And finally, one day they came in to see me and they said, Oliver, we've done everything for you that we can. The doctors, we all had several meetings over your case and we've decided that we can keep you here and we can keep your pain to a minimum, but we've exhausted everything that we can do for you. So you could either stay here or you could go home. And he said, so I decided I, I would go home. And his, his wife and his son were there. And he, he said to them, he said, the, the doctors have given up on me. He said to his son, take me out there to the hills and leave me there to fast the way that our old folks used to do this a long, long time ago. Now, what he was referring to is something that non-Indians call a vision quest. Most Native people that I know don't use that term, sure. but that's what he was referring to. 
And for the Comanches, and in fact, for really all of the Plains tribes, this was an important part of growing up. And in the old days, in the horse and buffalo days, almost every young man, every boy when he was about to become a man, would go on a vision quest. And some of the some of the girls would, but for the boys, it was just about a universal. And the, the formula for it was to go to open place in nature, you know, a, a place that was known to be a powerful place. Usually there's some history associated with it. Very often it's a, a mountaintop. Um, it's a place where there is medicine, and you know when when Native Americans use the word medicine, they don't mean it in the way that we do. They're talking about a power that exists in certain people and places and things. And you fast in that place, and you f decide beforehand on the number of days and nights that you'll be there with no food and no water, no shelter of any kind no comforts, no companionship, nobody else there. And the way, that, the way that they explain it is that if everything about you is right, that you may have some sort of an encounter there, maybe with an animal or maybe with a spirit, but something will change in you as a result of that. So getting back to the story, he, he told his son, he said, take me there out there to the hills and leave me there for me to fast. And his wife interjected and she said, you're not man enough to take it. She said, they're going to run you off. Now, let me explain what she meant by that. They Maybe believe because he's, he was never, you know, he wasn't, even though he is Indian, he was not part of all that before he uh, I mean, especially, you know, if he's sitting home watching TV, watching a football game, it's not, not, not exactly a regular uh, um, practices, I would say. Yeah, exactly. And what she was getting at was that they also have a belief that there are spirits that inhabit these places. Yeah. And the spirits, before they're going to turn over any spiritual or supernatural power to somebody they first want to test that person and find out how strong they are in their resolve and in their sacrifice. I and tell people about that all the time when people ask me about meditation and they want, because they're searching for answers. Mm -hmm. And I always tell them, you can get those answers within meditation by spirit, but spirit wants to make sure that you're in it for the right reasons. They're not just going to give you answers so you can tell some stories to your friends. They want to make sure that they can trust you enough to give you answers and to do the right thing with those answers. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, the, what I'm going to tell you now is not part of the story that he told me that day. This is, this is a related story that he told me sometime later was that there are, there were a number of places, power places there in the Wichita Mountains and southwest Oklahoma where people would go on vision quests. And one of those places was known to have a spirit there that if you went there, 
this spirit would jump on your chest and pull out a knife and thrust it like you like it was going to thrust the knife into your chest in order to test you first sure and their belief is that if the spirits test you in any way like if you turn around and you go back and you don't fulfill what you set out to do that you're never going to get it whatever it is that you went there for you're never going to get it if if the spirits scare you off i got i got tested in the same way sort of uh while finding out that i was a medium uh my wife went away on vacation for two weeks uh-huh. and uh while she was away for, on vacation i've seen spirit my entire life i just it's just not natural for me but for those two weeks they showed me everything in that home that you could ever think of or imagine of that would be in some type of scary movie. And they mm-hmm. did that to test me to see what I was going to do next. If I was going to push it away or was I going to move forward with it? And I chose to move forward with it. And once I did, all that scary stuff went away and then everything changed at that point. Beautiful. Well, that's that's a parallel story. Yes, absolutely. As you'll, as you'll find out in a moment here. So, uh, so yeah, so... His, when when his wife said, you're not man enough to take it, they're going to run you off, his response was, well, I've got nothing to lose at this point. The doctors turned me away. I might as well try this and see what happens. This has been part one of a spirituality and healing. For more information about Bob, please visit his website at www.bobbetter.com. Bob's book, Big Bo, The Spiritual Life and Teachings of a Kiowa Family is available on Amazon. Stay tuned for part two. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next time on Beyond the Veil with Daniel Jackson.